iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good evening, Apple Store Soho. How is everybody feeling tonight? How are we doing? I got three goods. Awesome. Wonderful. So we're all in a really good mood. This is awesome. We have a really exciting event. I'm personally looking forward to this one. It's Tribeca time. So we have a lot of great stuff happening here at the store. So we're going to kick it off in just a second. Uh, As I said earlier, this is Tribeca. So we do partner up with IndieWire and we bring you guys all sorts of really cool stuff. And to tell you a little more about what IndieWire is, I'd like to invite one of our friends to the stage. This is Basil. Warm round of applause for Basil, guys. Thanks a lot. So, uh, first of all, IndieWire has been uh, partnering with Apple to do these talks during Tribeca for a while now, and uh, we want to just uh, thank everybody at Apple for their, their support and their, their help with this. Um, the, the series will be continuing on through the end of Tribeca, so there's usually two to three uh, different film talks that happen each day, so check the website, uh, IndieWire, and as, as well as Apple's, uh, Apple Store Soho's website for that information. For those of you that don't know, IndieWire, IndieWire.com, is a website that is devoted to independent film. Uh, it connects filmmakers, fans, and industry together to, uh, to give you all sorts of information about films that are out there, box office reports, uh, film reviews, uh, etc. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Matt Whitecross, Paul Vera, Andy Serkis, and this evening's guest moderator, Aaron Hillis of Village Voice and Green Scene. Hi, hi. Thanks for coming out today. Uh, you know, a lot of people, I don't know uh, how many of you have seen the movie. I guess that's my first question. How many of you have seen the movie already? Not a lot. How many of you are familiar with... Uh, <laughs> how many of you are familiar with Ian Dury? Not a lot. You know, it, it's funny. A, a colleague of mine had said, sex and drugs and rock and roll will certainly get people in here, but he really felt that the name of this should have been changed and... This is a joke only for those who do know, to uh, new boots and iPads, I think would have been a good... Uh, no, but it is interesting that uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll has become this, this kind of uh, cliché, almost, and not a lot of people know that this is an Ian Dury creation. So I'm curious why, you know, what, what you guys think about, uh, you know, the fact that he's only being discovered by some posthumously, why he never seemed to really get his due, you know, or enough due while he was still rising uh, in his career? Um, oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, the amazing thing is if you listen to the music, it's a phenomenal album. If I would check out New Boots and Panties, you know, regardless of whether I was involved with this film or not, because it is an amazing album, an amazing combination of uh, brilliant kind of uh, American kind of funk mix, which was Chaz Jankel, Ian's co-writing music partner's kind of uh, favourite genre, and kind of English rock mixed with musical, mixed with theatricality. I mean, it's, it's an astonishing album. And that on its own stands up. The rest of the musical catalogue, maybe not so well. I mean, the, the musicians who are involved, the Blockheads, are a phenomenal group of musicians. But the other songs don't necessarily, uh, the other albums don't necessarily stand up. But he wrote some standout songs. He wrote, you know, he came up with the phrase sex and drugs and rock and roll. That didn't really exist before he said it. He put that together. He came up with reasons to be cheerful. Of those two, he said, if I got, you know, five pounds for every time those phrases were used, he wouldn't, wouldn't need to be where he was. He'd have been a lot richer. And uh, I think for now, actually, I mean, considering how music is kind of manufactured, and where he brought his musical um, kind of source from was from uh, an amazing eclectic individuality. And actually, in a lot of ways, those sort of kind of that way of pushing the work out there, and he worked incredibly hard at it, is something that maybe, you know, we could do with now in the kind of age of, you know, X Factor, etc. Now, Matt, you're, uh, you're a young guy. This, this uh, Ian Dury was before your time. How did you get involved in this project? Did you even know who he was beforehand? I, I had heard of Ian Dury. I didn't know a huge amount about him. It was one of those things that um, I, I, I kind of pride myself on my knowledge of music. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a huge fan of, uh, of a lot of bands of that era. And for some reason, I had this blind spot of Ian Dury and the blockers of, of that music. And I think partly I was probably put off by by the fact that, as Paul says, it's very difficult to try and pin him down as a, as a, a musician and as a man. I think he's, I, I couldn't really work him out, and I think that put me off. I, I know my dad was a fan, and so for that reason, when I was approached by Damien, the producer, I, mean, I knew Paul and Andy, 
anyway socially, but I didn't, but I didn't really know about the project. And um, I thought I wasn't the right person for it. And we spent quite a long time circling each other with Damien saying, no, 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 you should do it precisely because you're completely clueless and you don't know a single thing about the ear and you don't know anything about injury. We need a fresh pair of eyes. And I was saying, no, I, sh I shouldn't do it for that reason. And because I can't really work out who he is. But the more that I started to research it and the more I spent time with, with Paul and with, the, and with the family and with the band, I started to realize there was a really great story there. And I think, um, yeah, I think uh, there are probably a lot of people in my generation who really don't know who he is. He's ripe for rediscovery. And the one thing he never really did was compromise. And I think we li live in an era where mainstream pop is quite compromised. It's quite bland. It's quite homogenous. And I, it feels like what we really want to, we, we, we need kind of new injuries for, for you know, th this decade as well as for that time. And Andy, you, of course, already knew Paul. How did you get involved in this project? Uh, Paul and I have known each other for many, many years and uh, have put projects together before. And we were both looking for a story uh, that, you know, a sizable, good, chunky, meaty, uh, you know, story that we could both get involved with. And uh, Paul, Paul had started thinking about writing a, a kind of rocky story. He was interested in uh, music of the 70s. And, and I was aware of Ian Dewey and I'd read a biography about him. And, uh, and we, we just, we met in this in, in, in the Blue Post pub in Soho in London and uh, we just started talking about him and um, we, we just thought, you know, here was a unique voice, a real, a great British, uh, kind of legendary British underdog story um, with, a, you know, a man who had a unique voice, who broke out of the British pub rock scene, you know, he, he, he kind of overcame um, polio and, and, you know, drew from this, as, as we were saying, you know, this eclectic kind of sense of music hall and jazz and, and, uh, and, and, and had an extraordinary way of performing. I mean, if anybody ever saw, has ever, ever seen any footage of Ian performing, I mean, he, no two uh, concerts were alike. He, he was so in the moment, so out there, so kind of uh, challenging. He, he, he really challenged his audiences um, and, and was kind of he was this bizarre, almost kind of, uh, people couldn't put their finger on what he was, what he represented, but he, he, was, he was so in the moment. And um, we, we, we just thought, well, let's, you know, let's, let's try and wrangle this story. And uh, one thing we didn't want to do was to create a normal kind of rock biopic, because it just wouldn't have suited Ian's personality, it wouldn't have suited, uh, you know, we, didn't, we wouldn't want to represent him in that way. We wanted to find something that was more kaleidoscopic, more... Um, more uh, snapshot, more impressionistic, and that and that uh, reflected the essence of Ian. We didn't want to do, you know, he was born in 1942 and ended up in uh, in uh, dying in the year 2000. It was it was very much how you know how can we make this have the energy of a live Blockheads gig? So we so we started to to talk about it and hone in on a few of the key kind of themes and and uh, the kind of the emotional kind of heartbeat of the of the of the film, which which really centres around creativity and family and and particularly father and son relationships, uh, of which we all around here have a, you know have had a complicated kind of uh, things uh, along those lines which we wanted to investigate personally as well so so that that was how it kind of s uh, snowballed and then uh, and then Matt got involved and uh, you know we started to uh, you know piece together how how we were going to tell the story you mentioned the polio which of course is a, a big part of of his character, not only of, you know, how he had to live, but I think it, it was also a part of his personality, you know, just the, the things that he had to do to, you know, to, to overcome the, the physical obstacles. What was it like uh, trying that on? I mean, did you, have to, did you have to do a lot of research outside of what was already known about Dury's specific case, or...? We, yeah, I mean, we were we were incredibly lucky uh, in that in that Ian's family got involved with the project very early on, and you know, it, it, and it's an unusual situation. But you know, we were working, we were all working on it together for about three years or so, um, and so we, we were able to sort of tap into with them. You know, they they gave us a huge access to very very personal uh, details. I mean, it is ten years since Ian Ian died, and it's the ten year anniversary, March the twenty seventh this year. Um, and they they gave us a huge amount of personal insight into uh, into into his disability, into how he coped with that, how he used people as human props, how he would, where you know how he would use his disability to, you know, stir up controversy. How he would, you know, um, I mean, Ian never thought of himself as a, dis a, dis a disabled person because um, he he was only stricken with polio at the age of eight, so he never he never had that um, thing where he'd grown up with it all his life. So so he was able to actually manipulate 
um, sometimes wear it with a badge of honor, as a badge of honor, and sometimes, um, you know, just ignore it totally. Even though he had a huge kind of limp and he was withered all down his left side, and um, from talking to the family, we, they, they, gave, they, they gave us a lot of information, for, you know, about about physically how he coped with it and mentally coped with it. Um, and so I, I was able to tap into that, and then you know, work work very hard at uh, trying to nail that without making it. You know, getting fetishistically kind of involved in, caught up in it. You know, it was it was like a running condition of the character, which had to be got over, and then and then you know I could allow myself to play the character. Uh, Matt, you're you're probably best known for your work in in nonfiction with Road to Guantanamo and the Shock Doctrine. So I'm kind of curious what you brought from from that kind of filmmaking into a project like this. I mean, what was what was it like? I mean, trying to trying to adapt this the script for the screen. Well, it, it was very interesting. Obviously, you, um, there's a kind of strange thing that happens when you hop from doing documentary or music video and then go into drama. And every time you do it, I think, you know, you kind of finish a documentary and you feel like, I never want to see another real person in my life. I, I hate real people. I want to sit down with actors. I want to have some, someone bring me some tea and five hours on lighting, and then you can relax into it and work out the story you want to tell. And then as soon as you finish uh, drama, you're going to go, I never want to see another actor in my life. They're needy, neurotic people. I just want to get on with real life. And so, so that, that in, in that sense, each kind of film is a, like a reaction to the last. And it felt like um, with this particularly, in, initially when we were doing the research, Paul had already acted as a kind of psychotherapist to, first of all, to the family, then to the band, then to all the friends and the fans and so on. So he'd gone through a lot of that process, which I, I'd kind of done a similar job on Guantanamo, where we sp I spent a long time with the Tipton Three, who'd ended up in, in Guantanamo Bay Prison in Cuba. Um, and so I could, there's a process of kind of nurturing with them and, and uh, you know, listening to them. And uh, there's a responsibility that comes from taking on that story. With this, it was slightly different because we weren't doing a documentary. There's a couple of fantastic documentaries on Ian, which we drew from on occasion. But actually, we knew that that's not what we wanted to do. We didn't want to do the kind of bog standard biopics. So we said, well, OK, who's going to tell the story? We decided very early on it was going to be Ian because Ian was the kind of person who'd walk into a room and he had to be the center of attention. And if anyone was going to tell a story about him, it was going to be Ian. You know, he loved to you know, self-mythologize, to self-aggrandize. And each time you read another anecdote that he's, you know, whether it's in the biography or whether it's in a music magazine, each time it's a little bit different. Each time he's improving it, kind of carving it out, almost as if it's one of his songs. He's a character in one of his songs. So we spoke to the family about this, and we said, look, this, is, this process is going to be a little bit difficult for you because we are inevitably going to sometimes try and, you know, we're, we're kind of trying to compress 60 years into the space of two hours. There's all kinds of things we're going to go on with that. And not only that, but we're going to try and, you know, we'll play fast and loose with, the, with the, the facts, I think, because actually you get a lot of conflicting information from different people anyway. Everyone claimed to have written the songs. Everyone claimed to have been at the important events in his life, and he did the same thing himself. And so what I think we found there was a responsibility to know or get as close as possible to the truth initially in the research, but then to have the ability, the freedom to then discard that if and when we needed to. So there's, initially there's things where, you know, like you, if there's two characters who met him at different periods in his life, will you just have the meeting on the same night? That kind of happens in any dramatization. But on top of that, we threw in the line very close to the front, which was, you never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And after that, we kind of felt we had free reign. You know, it was more about getting to the emotional truth of his life and, his, and, and a scene, rather than worrying too much about doing it chronologically. And the last thing, I think, is really that we, because he had his whole, um, his whole persona and his whole kind of, his look on stage was all a throwback to the music hall, uh, you know, a period from kind of 80, 90 years before, then we said, well, okay, he's, he's the MC. He's on stage telling the story of his life, almost like a kind of self-seance coming back from the grave. If we're going to do that, then, in fact, we can do anything we want because we use all the, the trappings of a surreal stage show, which is, you know, was his on-stage persona. So he can be talking about something, and then suddenly we're in that scene. He can walk on and off the stage into a scene and be talking to the audience directly, and then we actually see what it is he's talking about. So that gave us a lot of freedom. So I felt, in a lot of ways, we began with the documentary style, and then we kind of moved, into, moved it into a different realm. When you're adapting a life, a man's life, you know, there, there's so much that you can do. Obviously, you want to concentrate on on his career to some extent, but this uh, the story is also largely about his relationship with his son Baxter. So I'm kind of curious what the what the evolution of the script process was. I mean, where where did you begin? Uh, I began by 
basically trying to, I was looking at 70s music and I wanted at the same time I was looking at trying to do a, uh, a film like a boxing movie basically I wanted to do the fighter's story you know he's rocky he's not good he's doing really badly he's down in his luck and then he comes back and he wins but he's down again is he going to come back and he doesn't win the match but he wins for himself and that was a story I wanted to tell and look at the 70s the music stories are not that great. The music's great, but not the stories. So then I looked at Ian, and Ian was like over the hill. He was 35 when he made it. He wasn't that great looking. Um, he really couldn't sing that well. Um, and he'd been disabled by polio. And I just thought, there's the fighter's story. So once I got that, sidled up to Andy in the blue post and gone, Ian, mate, what about doing a film about Ian Jury? We're then left with the dilemma. What do you do? Biopic. Didn't really want to do that. I... It's really, really difficult, if not impossible, to do a man's life. You know, how many minutes is it? I mean, you know, and you've only got 120 max, really. So then you're left with what are you going to do? I think the thing that I looked at when I started talking to all the family was that I wanted... I wanted everybody to be able to see this film. I didn't just want the Blockhead fans to come. I wanted them to come because they love Ian, but I wanted you know, people to really empathise with this man who was a very, very difficult and complex character. And I felt, looking at it, I could see some family drama in there. The music I could take and put to one side, that's fantastic. The kind of rock and roll thing takes a bit of drugs, it all goes horribly wrong, shags of lots of women, that's all to one side. And what you're left with is a family drama, really. And looking at it, the front of the album cover, New Boots and Panties, which was um, uh, Ian's uh, kind of big album, is a shot of him and a little boy outside a clothing shop in Victoria, London. And the little boy is Baxter, his son, who just happened to be there on the day and is in the thing. And it's very funny, they're all in a kind of very odd configuration. And just behind, in the back, is a man in a, a three-piece suit, a dummy, a mannequin, and Ian's father wore a kind of three-piece suit. He was a chauffeur. But he was a big, hard East End sort of guy. He wasn't very pleasant, bit of a boxer. all the right. And he'd married a very lovely middle-class lady. And Ian had been brought up by his mother. But when Ian was then got the polio and had to go into a very, very hard and difficult um, uh, kind of care home where he was very badly bullied... He obviously had a choice of which way to go. And that was, is he going to stay the nice mummy's boy and get the shit kicked out of him? Or is he going to become his dad, that kind of slightly kind of vaudevillian villain, really, to protect himself? And he went for that side. And that was at the moment I felt he kind of started to develop um, his persona. And that kind of triptych of those three characters, of the father-son relationships, all the way through was something that I just thought, I can re-relate to that. I mean, we all have, you know, we've had very, very um, uh, intense father-son relationships, uh, the people on this stage. So it was something I knew we could all get into. I've known Andy for many years. We've just both become fathers in the last 10, 11 years, and it's a difficult thing being a parent. And I thought, that's something, you know, that's universal. That doesn't matter whether you were born in the 70s, you like 70s music, or you're interested in funk or anything. So that was the kind of beginning, really. So when you knew the angle that you wanted to pursue. I mean, kind of going back to what, what Matt was saying about how obviously this is a dramatization and you know you can't get all of the dialogue exactly as conversations went. Uh, I mean, down to the fact that uh, Baxter seemed, I was, I was piecing this together by when he was born, it seemed like he would have been a little younger that, you know, the kinds of relation, the, the kind of dialogue that, uh, that he has, that Ian has with Baxter, you almost need someone a little bit older to make that work. So how did you find that line of like, how quick and dirty you could play with the facts. Well, I think the, the minute you decide you're not going to do a, a, a biopic, you are given a, you know, you can breathe a massive sigh of relief, to be honest, because, you know, you can do pretty much anything. We decided that the storyteller was going to be Ian Jury. He was going to do that thing. Who's the best person to tell this story? Ian Jury in a pub, probably. You know, just come in, me old mate. I'll tell you a few stories, have a beer. And he makes it up as he goes along a little bit. And so... But then that doesn't necessarily uh, negate the emotional truth of the thing. I think that's what it comes down to. So we had this place where he could perform from and tell this story, which is the musical stage, where he could hold a, an audience in the palm of his hand. And when you get to that, you can see the emotional beats in a man's life. And the trouble is, is that people repeat their mistakes. <laughs> they unfortunately don't learn as much as we'd all like, I think. So in a lot of ways, we were able to compress that time span. And... 
once you've compressed it, obviously strange things happen, like Baxter isn't quite as small as he is on the photo of the album cover and stuff like that. But if you're getting the truth across of what was going on in the relationship between those characters and you're not confusing the audience by doing a little Baxter and then another Baxter and then, you know, three actors playing it, I just felt that that was going to be clearer for our storytelling. And then everything that came on in the whole production kind of started, we started to kind of go with that costume, started to reflect character at different times rather than, you know, some thing uh, vague uh, um, locations became very important they had to symbolize something at a particular time makeup as well I mean it was it was a it was a kind of real kind of group bringing together in that respect uh, Andy could you talk a little bit about uh, your relationship uh, with the music as far as what you were actually performing yeah I mean we were we were incredibly fortunate in that in that we got to record with the actual blockheads and so after working on the project for for a couple of years there was this day in February last year where um, you know this band this you know we, we just thought god wouldn't it be amazing if we actually got to record with the blockheads and it we our wish came true and we we were standing there um kind of going oh my god we're actually going to have to do this now and I, it was a very nerve-wracking first um first uh, you know, day of working with them. We had 18 songs to do in two days. And um, I knew that my voice uh, or our voices were similar. I've got a similar timbre to, to Ian's uh, voice. And he was never a great, he never c considered himself a great vocalist. He, he always said that he acted his way through his songs. And so I was fairly kind of... Um, confident I could get that and uh, you know I'd, we'd all watched a million kind of you know documentaries and YouTube and all the rest of it but at the end of the day as I say you know impersonation only gets you so far and what I think Ian we always kind of thought well what Ian what would Ian how would he see this how would he want this uh I kind of thought Ian would probably want his lyrics to be interpreted fresh and and that's so it's a, a real kind of hybrid a mixture between you know being loyal to to his feel and uh, and and you know g generating the energy that that he had, but also being able to you know feel free to 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 kind of reinterpret his his lyrics in a very in you know in in, in a way that I felt was um, you know very in the moment and uh, connected with the audience that you know on the day when we actually got to record when we got to actually you know shoot all the, the live gig stuff. Um, so we, so we, but we did have to do pre-records, and uh, it was amazing, an amazing experience working with, uh, you know, the, the Blockheads. Um, you know, Matt directed the the, the songs so that they were useful, to, and 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 absolutely pertinent to the drama beats of the scene that Paul had written. I mean, he used the music in a very particular way. It wasn't, we didn't want to do well in 1976, they played this gig, and then in, you know, 1977, they played that song then. And, you know, we used the music dramatically, and throughout the movie, it, it you know, it was it was very, very specifically chosen to reflect Ian's inner state of mind or, or his relationships or, you know, various different things. And so, uh, you know, uh, to use an ex as an example, Hit Me With A Rhythm Stick, um, it, which was actually their hit major hit single. Um, uh, you know, we we use in our film as as a, as a moment where Ian is actually imploding. He's falling apart. Everything after the success of of the New Boots and Panties album, he can't cope, cope with the fame. And so we have Paul wrote. You know that the, the, um, the, the, the band appear at the bottom of a swimming pool that he falls into, and it's almost like he's drowning in in this sort of inability to. He felt he was normalised, and he felt this terrible kind of thing of feeling stronger as an outsider, as a lurker, as he called himself. Um, but once he got normalized by the fame that was given to him, he couldn't quite cope with it. Um, so we have, so we had him therefore kind of drowning in this uh, and using Hit Me With A Rhythm Stick at the bottom of a swimming pool. So there were, there, there were very, you know, we, we, we were very, uh, yeah, we chose, the, we chose the way to present the songs in a very specific way. Uh, just as Andy said, the, the music recording was very quick. Uh, I heard that the... Filming was was the shooting was was very quick as well. Kind of curious, what were some of the difficulties of having to having to make a film so quickly? How long have we got? Uh, it was um, every day was a, an absolute traumatic nightmare, and uh, it was. I mean, I, I was really looking forward to the shoot. I think we'd we'd been talking about making the film for such a long time. It felt like when we finally stepped onto the set on the first day, it was like oh, this, is, this is it. You know, we're really looking forward to it, and it was. It was. We, we thought it was going to be a pleasure because everyone got on. We you know it was a kind of it was a passion project for not only for the cast and the crew but also for the financiers. 
And for whatever reason, I don't know whether it was Ian who'd cursed us or whoever it was, but we'd obviously done something wrong because every day we had a nightmare. On the first day, we got Ray Winston on a beach and we thought, you know, he's been one of my heroes since I was a little kid. And it was, a, you know, it was a huge honor to have him there. And he came in and he was an absolute gentleman and he just nailed the scene and everything was perfect. And we were like, this is great. This is going to be a great shoot. The next morning, we got a call from the lab saying, for some reason, 50% of the rushes that we shot on him were completely fogged over and unusable. And he'd started growing a beard and gone to the States for his next part. So that was, and that, wasn't, that was one of the, the best days. So um, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, I mean, it kind of culminated with um, me getting arrested on the very last day of the shoot by uh, police after we went around the corner from the studio to uh, try and unwind. So um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty traumatic shoot, but I think, Generally speaking, um, we were probably overambitious, uh, and everyone knew it. We kind of we had probably invested so much time in the preparation, in, in, in you know having having spent kind of two years um, building up to that point. Uh, the finances said to us, and the bond company said to us, "Look, you're you've got five weeks to shoot this, and you've got two million pounds, which to me seemed like a lot of money, but they were like, Look, this is going to evaporate overnight.'" you need eight weeks to do this, maybe nine weeks, and you need at least double that budget. So you've got to cut something, it's fine, there's no more money available, you either do it this way, you, you don't do it. So you've got to cut down, lose this character, do that. And they weren't doing it in a kind of, you know, a kind of scary financial way, they were just saying, they were offering advice, which they were very good at doing. And you know, being a kind of arrogant and supposedly knowing everything, we kind of went, no, 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 we'll be fine, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. And I think we were fine in the end, but it just made every single day a real kind of labor and put everyone under a huge amount of pressure. But actually, remarkably, when we finished the shoot, despite all the hiccups, all the problems, we kind of looked at it and we lost very little. There were very few scenes that were in the script which we abandoned completely, but we had to think on our feet. We, you know, we'd end up having to shoot a scene in one take with just one camera angle, or you know, poor Andy would end up having to shoot a scene, a very important, crucial scene, um, without any of the other actors in the room. So there'd be five people in the room, but he'd just be talking to runners and to the, you know, to the uh, grip and to a gaffer. And we just have a very tight close-up on his face because we just didn't have the time. We couldn't employ all those people on the same day for scheduling reasons or because the kids ours. So you know, it was it was very tough. Um, and I didn't really. When we finished the shoot, I had and I was sitting there in that police cell overnight. I kind of thought um, I'm never going to work again, uh, which still may be possible. Um, but it's it, you know, I think once we got into the edit suite, uh, the editor who's fantastic is a guy called Peter Christelis. He said, "Look, don't worry. Stay away from no, stay away from me for a couple of days. I'm going to start piecing something together, and I think we've got a film there." But yeah, it was pretty tough. You don't get off that easy. Why were you arrested? <laughs> um, well, we, I hadn't even been drinking, actually. We went to a pub around the corner from the underwater stage in Pinewood. And it was, you know, we were all on a bit of a high because the uh, legal high uh, from uh, having been, uh, you know, doing the underwater stage and being on a, like, a big production. Suddenly, it all felt like we were on a big Hollywood film. And so we went to a local pub to celebrate the end of the film. And uh, there was a big drugs bust by the local police force. And... As they were searching people, they were pretty rough, and I was—I think I was kind of mildly cheeky to one of them. At which point, he started uh, calling me all kinds of things and dragged me out and uh, pulled my pants down in public. And everyone started chanting "sex, drugs, and rock and roll." And then uh, <laughs> I, I got dragged off to spend the night in the police cells. But so don't be cheeky to police cop, uh, to, and especially in—I um, think it was in Buckinghamshire, which is it's like the equivalent of the Deep South, probably in the States. They're kind of the, they're the equivalent of a redneck. It's an appropriate anecdote for a movie like this. Uh, Andy, you actually, you had a chance to meet Ian Dury. I'm, I'm curious what, what that was like. Yeah, it wasn't great. Um, he, he, you know, and I was really glad for it. I, I actually uh, was doing a play, workshopping a play that he was going to write the music for back in the mid-90s. It was based on a book by Sue Townsend who wrote Adrian Mole. Um, I don't know if you're aware of the Adrian Mole books, but he, she also wrote a book called The Queen and I, and it was about the, about the Queen being rehoused on a council estate in Leicester. And, he, and, he, and Ian, was, um, Ian was writing the music, and he came up with Mickey Gallagher from The Blockheads, and uh, we, we were all to meet him in this Chinese restaurant in the middle of Leicester in the precinct, and... Uh, and he was just, as he was prone to do, you know, if he if he kind of sensed something that made him uncomfortable in the room, he could be very kind of he could he could turn and be very very scathing and, and vitriolic and nasty, and he could you know like a scalpel kind of you know tear into people, um, and 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 this is and this is what happened. He was in, he was in fact he was absolutely smashed and 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 really kind of obnoxious and and. You know, he was this hero, you know, hero of mine, and uh, uh, and there he was, kind of behaving this way, and it was just like, well, yeah. I mean, I kind of wasn't too shocked, really. Um, Mickey Gallagher, who uh, was with the Blockheads, who was, they used to call it being on jury service, looking after Ian, you know, and uh, he, he, they ended up dumping him on the pavement outside, and the police got involved, and all the rest of it, and it, and it was kind of like, 
you know, it is that thing of you meet your heroes and and, uh, and perhaps they aren't, they don't turn out to be what you expected. But at the same time, coming to make the film, you know, 10 years later, uh, I kind of was really glad of that experience because when we went into shooting, I was under no, uh, you know, I, I wasn't under any kind of, I, I didn't feel at all that we had to be reverent. You know, it was going to be a warts and all the vision of Ian and he is an uncompromising character and thank and thank God for that because you know it's the same that same kind of darkness and that kind of vigor and and uh, you know he didn't suffer fools and that and that ability to you know that kind of power and energy you know kind of could turn either good or bad and uh, but but the world's so much a better place for having him you know having had him here and uh, you know I, I, I just think Although people can be complicated in that way, ultimately he operated from a position of honesty, really. And, uh, you know, he was very exacting. And I remember Sophie, his widow, saying to me once, um, you know, if you, had, if you made a cup of tea for Ian, it had to be the best cup of tea. You know, he, he often challenged people and, and, and made them, you know, made them confront themselves um, because he had to confront himself. And I, I think that that's something that we were we were not afraid to go you know we were not afraid to to go down that route with him really i mean there are moments in our film where he is incredibly dark and uh you know sort of um you you challenge the audience to really as to whether they're going to gun for him or not you know but finally i think you do because there is this sense of him not shying away from from coming he comes from a place of honesty At this point, uh, we'd like to turn it over to you for questions. So if you have any questions for Matt, Andy, and Paul, please ask. The question is, how much did the movie cost? I think in the end it was about 2.4 million pounds, something along those lines, which seems like a lot, but apparently it isn't because it evaporated very quickly. I think once you start paying, say again? Where was it shot? We shot it in Runnymede, which is just to the west of uh, London. Um, I know that you mentioned that his family came on board very early, but I was just wondering how it works in terms of making a real-life story. Is it something where you start writing the script and then go to the family, or you go to the family with the idea and develop a concept with them? Um, no, I don't. <laughs> um, write the script first, pretty dangerous, I would have thought, actually. Um, particularly in this case. I didn't feel that, that I didn't want to write a biopic, so I first of all needed permission to not write a biopic, really, and not write some kind of glorification of Ian Jury because I wouldn't have wanted to do it. Uh, so that would have been the end of the gig, really. I was very, very lucky. My agent actually went to university with uh, Jemima, Ian's daughter, so I had a very, very early in. And um, at that particular point, me and Andy went along, we met all the members of the family and, and started a kind of discussion. It was about a year's worth of talking, really, and, and trying to work it out. And then I can remember there was actually a kind of like um, uh, over-ambitious meeting, I think, quite early on development mentally, where me and Andy sat there and went, you know what we should do? We should do like Ian Jury. We bring him back from the dead and then we have him on stage and then we put all the songs that they play into the story and then at the end of the film we send him back into the darkness. And the uh, <laughs> two people... Two producers sat there and went, that's going to be really difficult. We went, yeah, yeah, like that. And so, but you couldn't do that sort of stuff unless you had the family on board. You know, you need that support, I think. You know, not always. I mean, you know, often they don't want to be involved. But uh, we were very, very fortunate that the injury clan and, um, and the friends are all very, very incredible, articulate people. In fact, when I delivered the first script to them, I was, you know, I went to get notes and uh, I kind of walked in. As I was walking there, I was feeling quite happy. And I suddenly went, oh, shit, I could get a real kicking here because basically it's their dead dad and their dead husband. And, you know, what have I done to him in this script, you know? And so I walked in and they had their scripts all marked up with lots of little kind of post-its. And I was thinking, I'm just dead here, dead. And they went, yeah, we've read your script about Ian. And, um, you know, really he was much more of a cunt than that. You've got to go a lot further. <laughs> And I was thinking, right, okay, great. Well, that was good. And at that moment, you know, you know you're all talking the same story. And we were able to go back time and time again and ask advice. And, you know, then they get ownership as well. They feel like it's part of them in there. You know, there are stories in there that they've told that, you know, that, that make the story better. That it's down to them. It's their lives. I mean, it's their lives. You've got to show a bit of respect, I think, you know. Otherwise, what the hell are you doing and why are you doing it? And that's why when Matt came on board, it was a, a real relief because he'd been dealing with lots of real people in the documentary situation. And, we, you know, we, we understood the responsibility, I think. We have one more for you right over here. 
Hello. Um, I was wondering, uh, Matt, if you can talk a little bit about your relationship with your actors and if you prefer to be um, you know, with them in the beginning and then you go with your cinematographer and then you talk with them or how that dynamic plays out. Um, well, yeah, so I mean, we were incredibly lucky on this because uh, we, you, you know, like you, like you do with anything, you try, as you're writing this, as Paul was writing the script and as I was uh, working on it with him, you kind of you, you start casting it already right from the beginning, and you're going to go. Well, obviously we knew that Andy was Ian, but who's everyone? Who who is everyone else going to be? And it was tricky because there are actually lots of little characters who are all very important to Ian's life, whether it's his dad or or whether it's um, uh, you know his wife, his ex-wife, or whether it's you know all those kind of things. But actually they've only got two or three scenes each in which to try and tell that story. So we needed to find like kind of top caliber actors, but also people who were going to stick in your mind who could really hold their own against Andy and really you know could really tell an audience almost do a character sketch, but with with very little to play with. And um, so we'd kind of go, well, we want a Ray Winston per type person to do that. Obviously, he won't do it because it's only a couple of scenes. Or we'd want, you know, Olivia Williams type of person. And the casting director said, well, you, know, you can you can always try. You know, I mean, it's unlikely. But and every single person we asked for said yes, which was amazing. So we I, we knew that a lot of the battle was already won before we even started filming. Um, once we got on set, I mean, you know, we'd spent I'd spent a long time with Andy and with Paul talking about the kind of film we wanted to make and how we were going to portray Ian. So we. We'd do read-throughs and kind of rehearsals over Andy's house. Andy was jet-setting between different films and so on. Every time he came back, because you know he was a producer on the film and on board from the start, then you know he had even more investment than usual in trying to get the thing to be as good as possible. And so immediately, I mean, Andy, you know, Andy uh, did everything on this from you know, I mean, pretty much the only thing he didn't do was uh, you know make the tea because I think he was he was uh, played the saxophone in the jazz sessions. He was a producer. He was obviously the vocalist and the actor and so on. And um, and so we would. We would get together over his house, and uh, every so often he would go, well, look, I'm on the set of Tintin, and I'm sitting next to Mackenzie Crook and Toby Jones. So I just asked them if they want to be in the film. So, okay, great. <laughs> and then so five minutes later, go, all right, we've got two more actors. Uh, who else? And so, th so that was fantastic. And then once we were actually on set, I think me and him um, had a shorthand, but also, I mean, there was a real, a real difficulty. As we said before, there really wasn't much time, and he was incredibly patient and understanding of that, that process. I mean, uh, Andy's director himself anyway. And he knows, I mean, he's worked on lots of low-budget uh, indie British films, so he knows that it wasn't a question of us being shambolic, it was just the way we were trying to piece it together. And we, so we, in terms of communication, I think it was very difficult, I mean, Andy can talk about this, but it, in trying to get someone as kind of in your face and over the top as Ian uh, to feel true as a character, is very hard because um, normally I would try and do a lot of takes and we kind of find our way into a scene. We didn't have that luxury on this. And so with someone, someone like Ian, I mean, you know, initially we'd start off in the first couple of days you know, Andy being very understated. And then we were like, well, that's not quite right because Ian was, was not an understated person. He was really over the top. But how do you do that without it being too much for a scene? So it was very difficult to find that balance. But Andy with, you know, often some one or two takes on each setup managed to pull it off, which is incredible. And then I think all the other actors took their cue from him. You know, if you'd had one of them, even one of them acting up, would have had real difficulties. But when it got to a point where, you know, in that scene that we just watched, where um, the only person in, in the Andy's close-up who's actually an actor is Andy, and the rest of the people are all crew members, and you suddenly realize that his son develops very hairy hands in the middle of a shot. It's because he's having to act just on his own, and I think a lot of people working at his level would just say, actually, forget it, this isn't, this isn't what I signed up for, I'm not, you know, I'm better than this. But actually, you know, because he was, he was on board from the start, because he's such a lovely guy, he, he just he, he went along with it, and all the other actors did the same. In terms of how you deal with each actor, I mean, it's amazing how, you know, if you, if you cast right, that's a lot of the, the trick. And I think with, um, you know, a lot of the times I just step back and, uh, and watch them do their thing. And then you just, I try and push them a little bit in one direction or see if there's moments they missed that I thought were important to a scene. But I, f I find anyway, if, if an actor really knows what they're doing and all these guys did, then a lot of the, the thing with directing is to try and stay out of their way and only come in when you're needed. I think there's, the, I have a tendency, which I'm trying to get rid of, to over talk things. And when actually the actors really know what they're doing a lot of the time and they don't always need your support, they don't need to be babysat. And so, you know, I'd, I'd find myself going in and going, right, right, this is what we're doing and actually just step back and just leave them a bit of space. I mean, even to the extent with, with the child actors, we've got two uh, child actors, play, one playing the young Ian, one playing young Baxter, Ian's son, and uh, Bill Milner, who you saw in that scene laughing uh, during the drug scene, he is someone who has got the confidence and kind of almost like the, the, he feels like he's got the experience of a 60-year-old. I mean, it's amazing. You go in there and I go, well, you know, what this scene's about, and, da, 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 and he'd sit there kind of patiently nodding and they go, yeah, yeah, fine. Do something completely different, much better than my original idea. And it was, it was great, you know. And so everyone goes, how did you coax that performance? And I go, ah, oh, well, it was very difficult. It was very difficult. <laughs> and, I, you know, and just, you know, you take all the credit at the end. And, uh, and otherwise, I think it's, 
we didn't have much time for this, but my general experience is that with actors, just try and give them enough room to try and to, to feel that they can trust you and experiment with things and that they're not going to fall flat on their face. And, you know, I think that was, that was certainly the case with Andy. Uh, Matt's being very modest, actually. What, what is brilliant about the way that he works is that he's an incredibly collaborative director and, you know, he allowed people... The, I mean, the whole process, the whole methodology of making this film was, you know, in my experience... Uh, you know, in, in all the films I think I've, I've been involved in, this, is, this has been one which is, has been the most collaborative. And, uh, you know, the greatest thing that you can have as an actor is an environment where you feel trusted and valued to be able to... To, 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 you know, use your craft. And, and so there was never a sense of kind of judgment or kind of, you know, that it was, it was a great kind of arena to be able to play with these characters. And Matt was, was very instrumental in, and Paul together because they, they worked in tandem and Paul was always there kind of keeping an eye on story as well. So it was a very, very, um, you know, we, we always felt very secure, I think, in, in, in terms of uh, being able to, to play. Although we had to move incredibly quickly, it has to be said. You know, we did have to move very quickly. Uh, but but, but, but it, it, it's, you know, and I think Matt, Matt, Matt's generosity towards his actors and the ability to only come in when necessary was, was something that was, was very much appreciated. And, uh, you know, we all, um, you, you know, I think, I think that thing of allowing people to bring what they they have to the table and being valued for that is not a lot of directors know how to do that and not a lot of directors know how to elicit performances out of actors it's a rare thing he can we have another question for you right here kind of follows up on what you were just talking about aside from a fresh set of eyes uh what brought you to matt who was a young documentary filmmaker basically to what made you think of him to be working with you on this project? He's really good looking. <laughs> That's why I brought him on. He was cheap. He was available. Absolutely. Everyone else turned them down. Yeah, everybody else said no. We thought he'll have to go with him. Um, why Matt? Well, um, I think we knew, I knew Matt. I knew Matt really well. <laughs> he lives just around the corner from me. Um, we all knew each other kind of, you know, and in that environment, we're all part of a kind of like, you know, that kind of whatever, the, you know, newer, younger filmmaking set of people in the UK. So we all knew each other. Um, the difficulty, I think the difficulty with something like this comes is that you know you've got a task on your hands. There is no two ways about that. Every, every part of the package, there isn't, there isn't a place in a, this sort of budget and this type of project for a, a person who says, I, I'm not sure I can do that. You need a can-do person. There is no two ways about that. And you need somebody that is going to, um, I don't know, take it by the scruff of the neck, work all the hours that's required, you know, and have the talent so when you get there, you've got the opportunity to be able to run with it. And I, I mean, the credit must go really to Damien Jones, who's our producer. And he, um, he, we, you know, we thought about various directors or whatever. And he said, well, what about Matt Whitecross? And I knew Matt, so, you know, it's great for me. No way. Oh, my, you've got to be joking. Have you, have you seen his film references? Um, but, uh, and I knew Andy, so in a lot of ways, that seemed like an absolutely natural fit. And I, but then you, what you're getting with that is you're getting a kind of somebody... You know, because if you're going to be able to collaborate, then and but other people have got other points of view. You're going to you're going to win because you've got other viewpoints and you've got other things that are going to feed in, and you just need those kind of different little sparks of energy. And I think you know when Matt turned up, it was like you know I, I there was I mean there was never a point where we don't think we thought we were going to make it really because we always kind of like thought you know this is just we were just so tenacious about it. And then when Matt was on board and he got that as well, and then then it felt like we were unstoppable. And there were moments where you kind of like think, oh, this is just you know what is this about? You get turned down again. And then at that moment, Damien Jones was there as the kind of Rottweiler from hell. He doesn't like being told no about anything actually. So you know, so at that moment you felt like you were kind of invincible, and that kind of carries you through because then you can at certain points go, well, you know, we're going to be adventurous. We're going to try and push out as far as possible. And if it all goes, you know, to hell, then we'll just have to take the rap for that. Fortunately, it didn't. We have time for two more questions. We have one way in the back over here. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to know uh, a couple questions, basically, and wrapped up in one. Uh, the production facility cameras, what kind of cameras and what kind of uh, formats... Uh, that you use to shoot, and also uh, distribution. 
what are you going for uh, uh, theatrical or silver screen? What is um, what is the scope of the distribution that you have in place and that you intend to have in place? Um, well, as, as far as the format goes, originally we because I've I've shot a lot uh, in the past on on digital, and uh, I wanted to go that way, but. Um, uh, we, well, we had a couple of, of DPs, and the the original DP wanted to shoot on film, and we kind of we talked, and there were lots of good reasons for doing that, um, but it was not my comfort zone, and so we ended up shooting. Uh, I can't remember exactly which one it was, which area camera it was, but we, but it was um, the combination for whatever reason, the combination of stock we used with the the camera we used was an absolute nightmare. It didn't work, and we get, got hundreds of hairs in the gate. I mean, every day we'd have kind of five, six, seven hairs in the gate, which is which never happens, never ever happens, and it was. It was horrible because we were up against it, and especially you know when Andy had just knocked a performance out of the park in one one take, and in like a five minute take, and then someone go, we've got to go again. I mean that was that was very difficult. What I tr what I really wanted to do was shoot on various different cameras to try and give this kaleidoscopic feel that we've been talking about. So we'd shoot on one film camera, and then normally I'd be, which I'd, I've done on lots of other stuff, I'd be on a second camera, maybe an HDV camera, and then sometimes we'd have other people in there with Super 8, and during the uh, music hall sequences, we had seven or eight different cameras, various different people dotted around, just trying to pick up moments. We had so little time that we just, I went back to my kind of music video background, having shot um, stuff with, uh, you know, live performances, like with Coldplay and so on, and just, just going, look, you know you've only got this one moment to try and do it, and there are certain takes where you know that Andy's never going to quite, you know, the light's not going to quite come up in exactly the same uh, way just as Andy delivers his line, so we really need to try and capture it from three different angles. So it was really about coverage in those scenes. Um, in terms of the distribution, we were incredibly lucky that, um, and it was, this was so unlikely, the first people to come on board in the UK were uh, a distribution group called Entertainment, who are the biggest distributors. They don't do small films like this. They do Lord of the Rings. They do you know, huge films. And for them, they just, they just suddenly took a punt in it. I think they were big fans of Andy because obviously Andy worked on Lord of the Rings with them, and they were huge fans of Ian Jury. And they were the least likely people on the planet to come on board. And they came on board, and once they did, they marketed it like it was Avatar, which was incredible. I mean, there were billboards everywhere, and it was just—it was almost embarrassing. You'd walk it down the street, and everywhere you looked, there were posters, and they really did a phenomenal job. Um, over here, Tribeca have picked it up, and they're distributing it in this country, and it, we're very proud to be connected with them on this because they're taking—I think they're taking—they're they're being very, very brave in the way they're marketing it. Usually what you do with a film, especially a small film like ours, is you send it out to a festival like this one, and you screen it in a few theaters, and then there's a big wave of publicity, and it appears in a few papers, and then it disappears after six months. Everyone's forgotten about it. Then, the, then you try and get that energy up again, that publicity up again, uh, and send it out into theaters nationwide. Then that disappears again, and then you try and release it on DVD or in homes. And what they've decided to do, because... I'm not saying this is a bad thing necessarily, but it's just the way that it is at the moment, that 3D and these huge Hollywood films are really swamping the market. I think if people go and see, the, the, you know, go and see a film a month or a film every two months, they're going to see Avatar, they're going to see Clash of the Titans, they're probably not going to go see Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll. And rather than sitting there crying about it, I think Tribeca is saying, well, look, okay, we've got to be proactive then. These films are great and there is an audience for them, but how do we get that audience into cinemas? And if we can't get them into cinemas, then maybe we take the films to them. So they're, what they're doing with this film is we're releasing it um, nationwide, um, for, and then we're also releasing it, obviously, for the festival, but that simultaneously it's going to be video on demand and on the internet. And for me, that seems the smartest way of doing it, just saying, look, the old methods of getting these films out there obviously aren't working anymore. People aren't seeing as much independent film. It's getting harder and harder to reach your audience. Well, okay, fine. Well, then we've just got to work harder, and we've got to get it out into their homes. We have one more question for you right here in the front. Hi, this question is for Andy. Big fan of your work. Loved you in all of the movies and thought you should have won an Oscar for Gollum. Anyway, point is, my question is, the fact that you had so many different roles in this film, from producer to actor to playing the saxophone, how was you able to really focus into the character? And what was your mental and physical process? Um, it's a really great question. And, and, and I think the fact... You know, normally when you when you are given a role or you you know you you meet and you you agree to do a role, um, there's a very short time span between that point and and principal photography. But this, having lived with it, having been part of it, and uh, you know w you know kind of generated it with Paul, uh, with Paul and then with Matt, you know, and you know there was a, a massive amount of time to work by osmosis and 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 really absorb the character and make character decisions that. Um, 
that that were you know crafted over a long period of time. I mean, there's sort of two. That there's there's two elements to, to to really to your question. That 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 is one of them. It, that the having the length of time to really absorb and to make choices and to um, you know work with the script and 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 go through all the drafts and and uh, you know and and be part of the storytelling process because because those choices were you know and how we chose to represent Ian were by then by dint of doing that we're going to reflect on how I was going to play him um, and then and then kind of later on sort of toward leading up to principal photography um, you know it was very necessary for me to physically kind of embody the character um, because Ian you know has had a very diminutive figure and so I, I, I worked very hard at um, uh, I, I had to lose a lot of weight, so I lost a couple of stone. And uh, I, uh, Ian, it was uh, was hairless, and I'm quite a hairy person. I had to have my entire body waxed, which was the most painful experience of my entire life. Um, uh, I'm very hirsute, Iraqi, thick, thick-haired person, and uh, uh, so, so, that, so, uh, you know, there were certain things that that uh, had to be done, um, and then learning to to walk with a caliper, learning how to use a, use a caliper, and there are different, you know, types of caliper, kind of going from the early 70s, and then and then to, to the one that you actually see in the movie, where he he gets one which was designed to fit, um, to, to you know, was molded to his leg, and so on. Um, how to how to move his gait was extraordinary and footage from 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 of, of ian walking was you know it, it was very um it is quite extraordinary to to to, to watch and and basically because his whole of his left side was pretty much you know withered he literally had to throw his body weight using the right hand side of his body so i worked quite Quite heavily on the right hand side of my body and built that up and and uh, and kind of allowed the, the left hand side of my body to kind of to, to waste a bit um, and then and then and then it was from from talking you know as I mentioned earlier from having the access to the family and talking talking about uh, uh, about Ian's personality of course but but also how his physicality kind of then bore bore uh, was borne out in terms of uh, you know how he how he used his disability or 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 how he um you know used people as as human props to get around how he got in and out of vehicles how he you know even down to very personal stories from from uh, Sophie his widow about you know about love making and and you know he considered the right hand side of his body very much he's kind of this very strong side of his body it was almost like i mean the, even the way he dressed you know he had he would wear lace gloves and it was kind of Kind of almost like the feminine side of his body, and was tr and treated it that way. Whereas this right hand side was quite, it was kind of like the yang side. And um, people, you know, of, often said you could see this muscle, this kind of huge throbbing muscle in Ian's on Ian's neck as he was performing on stage. And and this this kind of Sophie, his widow, said he was like he was like the he was like a, a tyrannosaurus, the energy of a tyrannosaurus rex with a, a maimed left side, and 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 that every time he went out on stage, every single time it was like you were, you were watching this man who was prepared to go to the lengths of you know almost to the point of dying. He put that much energy into his performances, you know. So so there were physical challenges. Um, so so I mean that that, that was a. A combination, I suppose, of, of having the luxury of working on, on the project for a long period of time and absorbing it, and and then uh, you know f physically sort of adapting along the way. All right. Well, thank you all so much for braving the chilly, rainy weather, and thank you to Andy, Matt, and Paul. Thank you again, uh, guys. Round of applause one more time for Matt Whitecross, Andy Circus, and Paul Vera. Thank you guys so much. Don't forget, it is Tribeca tomorrow night at 5 o'clock. We have director Nicole Hollisterner and actors Catherine Keener, Rebecca Hall, and Oliver Platt of the film Please Give. At 6.30, we have filmmaker Ed Burns of Nice Guy Johnny. And then at 8 o'clock, we have filmmaker Thomas Balmez of Babies. All this information and more can be found on our website, apple.com forward slash retail slash Tribeca. Everything's up there, the complete schedule of events. And now you even have it on your mobile device. If you guys have an iPhone or iPod Touch, there's a really cool free app for the Tribeca Film Festival. It looks just like this. Not just with the events here, but with all the events surrounding the festival. And this is actually really cool. You can see the complete schedule of events here and elsewhere throughout the festival. You can pick out the events you're interested in, and the app will help you make your own itinerary for the film festival, give you directions to each event. It's really, really cool. Also free. Thank you again for coming tonight. Get home safe, everybody, and have a wonderful evening. <laughs>